You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 77. Today, we're sitting down with nature photographer and writer Anna Morgan to chat about using photography as a tool to ask deeper questions, the importance of observation and intention when it comes to photography, the concepts of finite and infinite play, conservation and the roles photographers play, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Nature Photographers Network, or NPN. NPN is an online photography community dedicated to the art and craft of nature photography. It is a safe and supportive place to connect with others who are passionate about nature photography, to get helpful and constructive feedback on your photographs, and to learn from experts through articles, image critiques, Ask Me Anythings, webinars, and more. NPN is run by two of our previous guests, David Kingham and Jennifer Renwick, and they are doing a fabulous job of growing this vibrant community of photographers. I've been a member myself for a while now, and I highly recommend you check it out. To become a member of NPN, just go to npn.link OPS and get 10% off your first annual subscription with coupon code OPS10 at checkout. Again, go to npn.link slash OPS and get 10% off an annual subscription with coupon code OPS10 at checkout. Hello, my friends. Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you're having a great week so far. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Anna Morgan, whose work I've gotten more familiar with over this past year. And I really enjoyed our conversation today because Anna shared some interesting perspectives on how we can think differently about things like wilderness, conservation, and photography. So let me give you a little background on Anna before we roll the interview. Anna Morgan is a nature photographer and writer currently residing with her family of four in British Columbia, Canada. After practicing veterinary medicine for about 12 years, she enrolled in a postgraduate master's program in the transdisciplinary field of conservation medicine. Her research brought photography and conservation together to examine the role of the conservation photographer and opened the door for her to explore her self-awareness and brought her a deeper understanding of the structural frameworks that underpin the premise of conservation photography. With a focus on intimate landscapes and an emphasis on connecting to place from an introspective perspective, Anna aims to create expressive images that capture that quiet, mysterious beauty that she finds in nature. And so without further ado, please enjoy my thought-provoking conversation with Anna Morgan. Anna, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you so much, Brenda, for inviting me along. I'm really grateful to be here today. Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad we got to make it work out. So for the listeners who are not yet familiar with your work, I was wondering if you could take us back in time, tell us a little bit about yourself, your origin story, you know, where are you from? And how did you even get interested in photography in the first place? Okay. Well, uh, from a photography perspective, I think I've been photographing probably about half my life since my late teens, early twenties. And I think it really started from, um, an interest in traveling. Um, Mm. and it's just really taken off from there and photography and my thinking has evolved uh, over the years. Um, but that's, you know, that's how long I've been doing it. And, um, in terms of me, um, you can obviously hear from my accent. I'm originally from the UK. Um, I actually half Spanish, my mom's Spanish, um, my father's English, um, grew up in the UK, but spent a lot of time in the, um, North of Spain growing up. Nice. And then I worked as a veterinarian, um, for, um, around 12 years 
and um, then decided to sell the clinic. Um, we had our first um, son welcomed into the world in 2017. And then when he was four months old, we decided to uh, up sticks and move halfway across the world. So we're now um, just outside Vancouver in British Columbia. And um, we've been very happy here ever since. And we've since got uh, another little one as well. So yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, beautiful, you be- beautiful place to move to. Absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. very lucky to be here. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I noticed in your artist statement on your website that uh, you write that photography is the vehicle on a journey into being. And I was wondering in what ways photography has helped you on that journey. Well, um, thanks for asking that question. Um, I, it's been a journey into understanding why I do photography in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've learned more and more, um, about myself since I have been making, I guess, more, academic inquiries into what photography means to me and what it can mean to other people as well. Um, and really, I guess what I'm talking about is curiosity and using photography, um, as a tool to ask questions. So when I'm out in the field photographing, um, you know, there might be questions about light and so on, but there might also be questions about the subject that I'm photographing. Um, so if it's a tree, I might, um, start to inquire a little bit more about, um, the ecology of that tree and, and really how I fit into that landscape and my thoughts on that particular subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that can be really straightforward in inquiry. And sometimes it, you know, I feel like in my mind it gets quite abstract, but, um, it's generally helped me, uh, to ground myself and to understand, um, yeah, where I fit into things in the world, um, and help me, um, understand more about myself. Do you feel like, uh, photography sort of creates a relationship between you and your subject? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, photography, I mean, it quite literally is all about seeing. Um, and for me, that's, you know, about observing, um, taking the time to, to pay attention to the things around us. Um, and that can, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily have a camera in hand to, um, to be paying attention and noticing, but, um, it does help bring a stronger relationship between me and the natural world. So, um, you know, if there's a particular place that I have been photographing before, even if I'm then out in that area without a camera, I, you know, I, I really do, um, make a, I think, unconscious effort to, um, to notice what's going on with that particular environment when I go back to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not a relationship just for that immediate moment that you're taking the photograph, but, um, I guess a longer lasting relationship as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you say that you're a naturally curious person? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'd say, um, and it's funny, I, I see it in my children now. Um, I'd say I've always been curious. My parents always told me I was curious as a child. I loved to read and I would, I would have, my, my dad would bring a book home from the library every, every day as a, as a small kid. Um, nice. and then, you know, the next day I'd give it back and ask for another one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've, I've always been interested in learning. I've always been interested in kind of pushing my own knowledge. And it's funny, the more you know, the, the more you realize you're just like an insignificant, you have an insignificant amount of knowledge. There's so much out there yeah. to know and to expand your knowledge on. Um, so yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely been a trait I've carried with me my whole life. Yeah. Um, me too. I was always told like, stop asking so many questions. <laughs> you know, it was like the kid yeah. who was always like, but why, but why? <laughs> like, stop. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and now I have to refrain from saying, you know, don't ask so many questions. Exactly. Because, you know, it's very much about encouraging, but it's, um, it's, it's exhausting obviously for parents. It is. It is. I, I, I tried to cultivate that in my daughter a little bit where, um, before she was starting to ask the question, why, 
I would say things like, well, how do you think that works? Or why do you think that's happening? You know, and because mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to see how she would handle that and um, what she'd come up with, you know, because I think it's so interesting to see how, how kids are making sense of the world around them, you know, and the yeah, connections sure. that they're making. And um, but now she is she comes up with um, all these reasons for things and every And so I feel like I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> she's. <laughs> she's rationalizing everything maybe a little too much, but (laughs) (laughs) so, yeah, it is. Um, So you have a a medical background. I have a science background. Do you think that sort of scientific medical background has shaped your ability to be very observant and that sort of thing? Or do you think that that's something that came out a characteristic or a behavior or a tendency that came out through your practice of photography? That's quite an interesting question because um, I think pre doing my master's, I probably would have said, yes, totally. My scientific career um, got me asking questions and being curious and um, observing facts and so on. And, you know, as a veterinarian, um, you know, as patients came into the clinic, you would have to, um, you know, particularly uh, veterinary patients, they can't talk, they can't tell you what they think and so you're constantly observing them and sometimes their metrics that you measure you know what is this dog's temperature um how fast is the heart rate and so on um and sometimes it's just general observation you know what's the demeanor um how are they holding their tail you know how worried are they etc um and so i always thought that that's um that was the core part of of observing but um, one thing I learned quite a bit about during my master's is, um, is that uh, positivist side of science where we're always looking for an answer um, and we're always looking to simplify and redact. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways I find that the scientific community is much more or potentially much more black and white in its thinking and um, always wanting to simplify. Um, So I feel like um, it's not quite as simple an extrapolation, Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely think there is something there. And I I do think that science gives you um, a certain discipline um, in terms of working your way through something. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think all of those um, qualities have been um, influential to my photography. Um, but I also think that being interested in art generally, um, creativity, philosophy, and so on, have expanded the way I think and therefore the way I see as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned, uh, I think it was, might, might've been also part of your artist statement that the greatest lesson that you've learned is to, con- and continue to relearn is the importance of slowing down. Mm-hmm. So I was telling, wondering if you could tell us more about that process of slowing down and how it uh, pertains to your approach to your creativity and, and, uh, photography. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't think it was until I really tried to slow down that I realized just how fast our pace of life generally is um, in the Western world. And I mean, I lived um, just outside of London, which is like a super busy city. Um, Things go, go, go all the time. Everybody's in a hurry. Um, You know, people have their heads down on the, on the tube getting to work. Um, Nobody talks to each other. Um, And um, you know, it's just, you don't have the mental space, um, the emotional space, um, or quite literally the physical space to really start to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So, um, for me, I mean, we made a conscious decision to, to move out of London and, um, and to a smaller city, um, a city with, uh, a lot of wilderness around it. So we're not far from places that you can, you know, that there's literally nothing going on um, in kind of, you know, the human realm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I think it took having children and having a family before understanding what slowing down really meant. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, it can't be really busy and super fast having children as well. You know, you have to, you know, there are routines and, um, and so on, you know, you've got to get mealtimes, they get really grumpy and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's just really observing children and noticing how, um, you know, anything just like playtime, playing in water, um, playing on the beach, you know, it's just a total slowdown of time. They really just enjoy everything in the moment, in the present moment. Um, and, and that's what I have, I guess, learned to do over the last few years in my photography is, um, not to be chasing a goal. Um, not to be saying, you know, I, I don't think I've observed a sunset for years because the kid's bedtime inevitably lands at around that time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just a, it's the ultimate slowdown right. um, <laughs> and, and just, but, but being okay with that and, um, and I guess just letting go of the fact that you're missing out, you know, you're not missing out, you're, you're being present in that time and taking full opportunities within that time is, is really what slowing down is all about. And I say relearn because, um, you know, very occasionally now I still like, Oh no, I wish I could go and do that. Or, um, and then you, you, you're actually losing the, the present. So, you know, as soon as I hear myself say those words internally, I'm like, Oh no, hold on. You know, right. <laughs> I'm going down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah. so I try and bring myself back to the present. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very mindful, like a mindfulness practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely part of it. Yeah. And I, I saw on your website, you had an article that you wrote or an essay about um, finite and infinite play, yeah, uh, which was really fascinating. And um, I actually had also just recently listened to a podcast about that same concept. And so it it seems to me like what you're describing when you're watching your children play and they're just enjoying that process of playing, that mm-hmm. it kind of is tying into that those concepts of finite and infinite play so I was wondering if you could describe what those are and and how do you think those apply to photography in general and and maybe more specifically to your approach to photography okay so well the finite and infinite play or games was coined um in this book by James Cass um and he and and it kind of tied into when game theory was coming out in in the mathematical world um and more concepts were going around that um so essentially finite games is are games you play to win um so it's really easy to look at games like you know a game of football or basketball or you know there is a very defined goal you you need to win and to win, you get you have to you know score this many points or score more than the other team, um, and so that's that's quite an easy concept to see. Um, and then there can be finite games within. Um, so I think it was Simon Sinek who wrote more about um, finite and infinite games in the economics type world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's correlations between finite games and say going for a job interview. You are going to to win. You you want to get that job at the end of the day. Um, and infinite games, on the other hand, are games that you specifically play to continue playing. So um, these are games that are a little. Then they're not so easy to define um, because they don't necessarily have this end um, outcome. But if you think about it in the context of a business. Um, then the the point is that you want to keep the business going and you adapt and and grow. um, And it's not necessarily about exponential growth. It's about adapting and changing as, as you go. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way I, I think I relate that to photography um, is that 
the finite type way of playing photography or practicing photography, if you like, um, would be about having a defined goal in your photography. And sometimes that can be a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's not a criticism of people who practice photography that way. Um, but I tend to find that the infinite game type photography where you're um, playing with your camera, experimenting, um, not closing your mind to different possibilities. Because once once you've got that finite goal in your mind, then literally everything else is a is a loss. It's a it's a failure. Mm-hmm. Um and that's something that we're just putting on ourselves externally. So um, you know, you feel a sense of expectation that you must uh get to the end and get this goal that you're looking at. Um, whatever that might be, whether it's a particular shot at a particular location or um you know a particular project goal or something like that um whereas the infinite type way of practicing would be more about um just creativity basically mm-hmm. um and both have their places in in different contexts but um i think that there needs to be um a general healthy balance and i feel like to be balanced there has to be less of the goal oriented photography and more of the play and possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I imagine for people who are just starting out that the, the finite game approach is probably more feasible or mm-hmm. at least done more consistently because they are trying to learn certain techniques or um, yeah, understand absolutely. their camera and, and things like that. And so, but then being able to expand beyond that and not get hung up just on technique and, and be more open-minded yeah, about it. I definitely yeah. um, agree with you there that there's um, a process that I think every photographer goes through. And yeah, as you're learning, then the finite type photography makes far more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you become really comfortable with what you know you can do, then you, then you really expand um, your range of possibilities by experimenting. Right. Yeah. So when you go out into the landscape, what are you connecting with typically? Um, Anything and everything. I I mean, (laughs) yes, all. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have, um, yeah, I, I don't have a favorite subject per se. I don't have a favorite, um, type of light to photograph in. I, I don't have favorite locations so much, uh, or, or types of locations. Um, so I tend to just try and look for whatever catches my eye wherever I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I try not to get hung up on, um, where that is. So, you know, even walking around, um, you know, derelict buildings, you know, there'll be, there'll be nature all around that. And it's, it's just a case of, um, observing and keeping your eye out on, you know, for things, paying attention as you go. Um, so yeah, I wish I, I wish I had more to give you on that. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I want to, I want to, uh, tease something out. Maybe you can help me understand. So Mm you know, people talk about mindful photography and expressive photography and contemplative photography and slow photography and, and those types of things, which I feel like is what you're describing in mm-hmm. in your approach. And in some of your writing, I notice you use the word intentional as well, you know, and so I'm wondering in light of what we were just talking about with finite and infinite games and having a mindful approach and an open-minded approach versus an intentional approach I guess maybe you can help me understand what you mean by intentional. I don't think I'm guessing you don't mean with purpose and pl- and have a plan. There's something else yeah. about that intent. Yeah, I guess the um, intentionality really refers to the intention to pay attention, mm, okay. um, and and to take everything as is and for what it is. Um, so, um, 
people talk about living their life with intention. Um, and that doesn't mean, um, you know, having a particular goal for your life or needing to have particular things in your life. It just means that you're living your life intentionally. So, you know, when you go, uh, say out to buy groceries, you are paying attention to, to what it is you're buying and how you're consuming. Um, and it's the same for me when I go out into nature, whether that's like I say, somewhere really urban, um, or complete wilderness or everywhere in between. So I go out with the intention of enjoying it, of being present to it and, Mm -hmm. um, really observing and paying attention to everything, um, within that landscape and, and also very importantly, like not judging. Mm -hmm. So you make decisions for yourself, obviously along the way and you say, you know, okay, I, you know, let me have a go at photographing this scene. I, you know, I enjoy this. Let's see what I can get from it. Um, but that's not about having a goal so much as just, you know, staying present to what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Sort of keeping an awareness about you. Yeah. 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 So I really love your natural abstract photographs. I just, they're just so beautiful. I can get lost just looking at them. And Thank I, you. I noticed that you use a variety of methods, anything from something simple, just like excluding the context. And so you really got to think about what is it you're looking at beyond the colors and lines and shapes. Like it's, you know, makes your brain sort of be like, what is it? What is it? You know, mm-hmm. but then you also do other techniques that like intentional camera movement and multiple exposures. And so I was wondering if you could share with us what your approach is to creating abstract images. So, you know, when you're, um, looking for compositions, what is sort of that trigger moment that makes you realize that a composition will be possible to tease out of a chaotic visual situation? Okay. Um, I mean, I guess when I approach a scene, um, like anyone, I'll kind of be working that scene and moving around and, um, seeing what different, uh, perspectives different focal lengths um might bring and um depending on the elements that kind of line up sometimes i feel like the composition itself is um like enough i i guess i don't know whether there's a right word for that but um i i mean you're right i do tend to like um focusing on smaller scenes that kind of exclude and make the scene, I guess, a little bit more mysterious, ask questions rather than give you the answers to to what's in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there'll be certain situations where, you know, perhaps uh, I am photographing something and I've, I've taken that, that straight shot, if you like, and I'm just, you know, the composition itself doesn't, give it enough of a of a mystery or like that wow element so then um I guess going back to the play is just really about moving my camera around and seeing if anything else can come up with it and knowing that you know you might take a hundred images and maybe none of them will work out and maybe one or two will will look okay um and I think um particularly if there are places like sometimes I've come across locations um where say the light is just too bright in a particular area for a straight shot to make it look natural and compelling mm-hmm. um so using some um intentional camera movement or multiple exposures I find can introduce that element of mystery um through technique mm-hmm. um so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is maybe my default is to take a straight um, image initially and then and then play around. And I think that's, I tend to have a process which I work through. It's very rare that I will come to a location and, and just immediately start doing multiple exposures. Right. Um, yeah. Although sometimes I come across those things, like maybe I've driven past, like there's a Pacific dogwood in a, in a local park and um, I, I did a multiple exposure um practice play 
um, going back three or four months. And that was one location that I didn't even try to do a straight image. Um, but maybe that's because I'd driven past it so many times and thought, I, you know, I know exactly how I'm going to approach that. Right. Um, that's kind of rare. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So what are you trying to express or reflect through your photography? I guess for me, um, I'm not necessarily trying to express anything with the photograph itself, but I'm trying to make the subject shine and, you know, open people's eyes to what the mundane can actually look like things that people walk past like every day um without giving it a second thought or a second look mm-hmm. um you know sometimes you walk through i've got an image of um ice in a in a puddle in a parking lot um, <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah it's like a really gray parking lot and i remember the day so well it was like so dreary um you know, all the, and it was, it's outside a hockey, um, rink. So the, the rec center basically dump all this snow on the side. And there was like this little puddle next door, right by it. And it had frozen and there's really cool, like lattice patterns. Yeah. And I think people just thought I was totally crazy, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but nature's so cool. Like it, you know, it, it shows up, um, everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. Um, and, and yeah, so many people walk past these things without noticing them. So, um, I guess my, a lot of the intent is about showing, um, things that I see and making people think, um, and expanding other people's curiosity as well as my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's a way, like, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask was how do you think people who don't have good accessibility to the wilderness, you know, either because of distance or cost or ability or anything like that, how could they cultivate a connection or respect for the natural world? And it sounds like what you're saying is it's all around us. And, you know, mm-hmm. even ice from a hockey rink is enough to see this really interesting pattern that ice is doing. And that's a characteristic of, of ice. That's, that's a part of nature too. And, um, so I, I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, I mean, growing up in the UK, wilderness is not really a thing. I mean, the whole of Europe really, um, even though there are wild areas, um, wilderness isn't really a thing. And, and I think even in North America, wilderness is a, is a socially constructed idea. Mm. Um, it's, you know, wilderness is just nature that maybe hasn't been touched by human hands as much, but it's, it's untrue to say that humans have no, um, effect on quote unquote wilderness. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the idea of wilderness and that kind of romanticized um, idea of wilderness that, you know, many people grow up knowing through reading um, Thoreau and so on. Um, I think it's created a binary um, between what nature is and what wilderness is. Mm-hmm. And, I, th- you know, I think that's really sad. Um, yeah. Nature is, we are nature. We're not separate from nature. We're, we're, we are nature. It, it's not even true to say we are a part of nature. You know, we are nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everything around us is, is natural too. Um, not everything, obviously. We, we do construct things um, and make things that don't naturally appear. But everywhere you go, um, even when you're looking at, paving blocks you can see little bits of moss and tiny tiny things growing in the cracks and I think it's just really appreciating that um and not having this constant longing or lust for wilderness as much as I also love um going to those wild areas um and you know I think that we can take the time to appreciate things um 
all around us and it's not just about going and finding these um so-called untouched spaces um and sometimes i kind of find the notion if i'm right in remembering the kind of strap line of um the us national park service where you know the the parks are forever set aside for the people and i find that quite a sad concept as well because these parks are um you know that the fact that they're set aside for people um to me doesn't quite correlate with the values that i, I feel like the parks should be there for I and mean, i'm very mm-hmm. grateful that the parks are there obviously um but um the ecosystems that are within the parks are so much more than what value they can provide to people right um and i think people can find uh, all of these values in terms of um how people relate to nature in their own environments as well mm-hmm. yeah it seems like when people have an experience where they have access to the wild or the wilderness or or a m- more remote area and that's not an environment that they're used to seeing or being in that it can elicit, you know, a sense of awe and wonder. And that's what people are, are trying to tap into. And I think what you're trying to say is that we need to be doing that even for that little tiny moss in the crack in the pavement, you know, appreciating that because <laughs> that's nature too. And, you know, if, if, if we can have that same, experience of appreciating this form of nature that's growing in this horrid environment and it's still finding a way to do that you know that's a beautiful thing to appreciate and have awe about and so maybe it is much more accessible and we don't need to be going out into into the wilderness to have that kind of an experience yeah for sure and i think you know when you talk about things like town planning city planning i think that is coming more and more into the um the thinking process when um planning decisions are made um and people are starting to realize that nature has to be um integrated into all the other things uh, around us as well so it's not just a case of like providing Um, the right amenities we also need natural spaces and you know those spaces can be really small natural spaces um or uh, larger places where people can run around or um bike or or whatever but but i think just uh consciously bringing those types of spaces into urban environments um is really important and i think that's maybe one thing that the pandemic has um brought to the forefront a little bit um i know it's improved um people's desire to say grow food um and have their own little green spaces on their balconies or or whatever um so yeah i definitely think that that all can be nurtured in urban spaces too and you know again um and also just as much in or every time i go to um these kind of wilder um, national park type spaces, but it, it can be found anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So shifting gears just a little bit. So I understand that when you made the transition to move to Canada, you left your veterinary practice and you decided to get a master's in conservation medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a new field. I had never heard of that until I read your bio. <laughs> so can you please define what that is uh, for the listeners and what did you discover through your research and did it get integrated into your photography at all yeah okay so firstly you're not alone in not knowing (laughs) what conservation medicine is um most vets and most conservationists have also not heard of conservation medicine (laughs) so (laughs) um so okay so the program itself was open to um veterinary graduates um so it was designed for for vets um and the fact that it's uh, conservation medicine is like implies that it's all about health, mm-hmm. um, and and the medicine part is the the healing part. Um, so the the concept is really about how um, 
human health, uh, non-human health, and or non-human animal health and um, ecosystem health come together. Um, and that kind of little central part is what the conservation medicine is all about. And so it covers quite a wide range of topics. In the first um, two years of study, um, were more uh, about understanding those connections um, a little bit more and what, you know, the, the range of things that that means. So that can mean anything from um, predicting when a new uh, zoonotic infectious disease such as COVID-19 might arise, mm-hmm. um, but it also might be things like um, predicting the spread of Lyme disease or um understanding how um, rhino horn horn poaching um, affects um, so many lives and and so on and so forth. So it's like a hugely diverse um, subject area. And then I was was really fortunate to have um, an amazing supervisor uh, for my last year, which which was the thesis part. And... um, he said to me, well, Anna, what are you interested in? Um, you know, when I was trying to decide what I wanted to, um, to write about and study. And I said, well, um, I came into this with a, with a desire to understand more about rewilding. Mm. And, um, and then I'm also really interested in photography and thinking, well, that's like a really weird connection. And he was like, okay, so, why don't you go off and um, think about doing something on photography? And and so I came up with this idea of trying to um, understand the role of a photographer, um, the, the role a photographer plays in conservation. Um, so, and in the past, there's been studies on what, conservation photography does but never really what the what the photographer as an individual brings Mm -hmm. so it was quite an interesting study and I got to interview um three uh amazing photographers um who I am forever grateful for um so William Neal um was one of them um Peter Cairns based in Scotland um and John Marriott, who's um, a wildlife photographer based in Camel, Alberta. Uh-huh. And so I did these like really in-depth interviews with them. And, um, and I learned a huge amount, obviously wrote my thesis. And that whole process, aside from me learning more about the role of uh, photographers in conservation, it also helped me to understand my role as a photographer and what I bring to my photography, my practices, what they mean and how they've come about. And, um, and I guess that's where the intentionality comes into it. It's, it's the intention of paying attention and, and so on and so forth. And, and I think that that journey of doing the research has changed the way I photograph and, and I probably will continue evolving that as time goes on. Um, but that whole process was hugely influential yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So, did you also integrate that with the rewilding idea as well? So, Peter Cairns, um, who I interviewed, he is he does um, he's part of a program called Rewilding Scotland. Oh, it's Scotland: The Big Picture, and it's a rewilding. Um, I'm assuming it's a nonprofit. I can't remember exactly, um, but. Um, we spent quite a bit of time talking about rewilding and the concepts and what that means specifically to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people think of Scotland as a really wild, like wild moorland and stuff. But the reality is that um, Scotland's forests have just been decimated over centuries. And, you know, everything that is there in terms of, um, you know, deer hunting and the moors and so on, um, is all artificial, like it's all human made essentially. Um, so he's looking to uh, obviously reforest a lot of it, but reforest it in a, not in the way that historically we've reforested, which is just to plant little monocultures of forests, 
but right. to do it in a much more natural way. And with the idea that it's like a 200 year project, it's not something that his generation um, or, you know, even our kids' generations will ever come to see the, the fruits of. Right. Um, it is a long term project. Um, yeah, it's it's sorry. really fascinating. Vermont actually did a very similar thing about a hundred years ago. So, in maybe maybe it's more like two hundred years ago. Let me think about that. It was like the late eighteen hundreds into the early nineteen hundreds. The whole state was totally deforested. It was a huge logging industry and sheep farming industry, and so what happened was you know the mountainsides were completely clear cut. And then there was a lot of destruction with, you know, washouts and mudslides and things like that. And around 1920, I think, um, the government was like, you know what, we need to protect this. And they actually did a really good thing and took a very similar approach, it sounds like, to what you're describing, which was to let the native plants grow back. And yeah. they, they built a whole system around sustainable forestry. So forestry is still an economic driver in the state. but now the state is like 75% forested. You wouldn't consider it wilderness so much, but there are unfragmented tracts of forest which have the native hardwood species back. So what happened actually initially after all of the deforestation happened, white pine came in and took over because it grew really quickly. And so it outcompeted all the hardwood trees. And so part of the sustainable practice has been to remove the pulp trees so that the hardwood trees can grow. And it's so interesting to me because now that's what gives Vermont its fall colors that it's so known for. <laughs> but like a hundred years ago, well, that would not have been the case. <laughs> and people kind of think that like, oh, it's always been this way. And oh, you know, you go to Vermont, it's this going back in time kind of place. But really, this is a new phenomenon, the foliage that we have. That's so interesting. And it's so encouraging to hear those kind of stories from other places as well. Yeah. And when, when you hike in the woods here, you can't go very far without finding a rock wall. They're just all over the place. And so once you start to notice them, you'll find little, little cemeteries, little foundations, you know, it's like a whole story of the forest that is hidden in the forest, you know, and you can kind of start to piece together like, okay, well, if all these trees weren't here, what would it look like? And you can start to see, well, this was somebody's farm and this was another farm and this was a schoolhouse or whatever. And it's just crazy how, how it's growing back, you know, but that history is still there. Yeah. That's, that's really incredible. And it's yeah. hard because, um, like when I first came to Canada, I had, this image of Canada being like really pristine and like, the forest being pristine and to come and learn so much about clear cutting clear cuts that happen in, in the forestry here is, um, is really disheartening. They're still logging old growth forests and oh my gosh, yeah. all of that intricacy that you're describing about the hardwoods and um, yeah, it's, it's at danger in danger of being lost forever. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting now to see what is being done and the people that are kind of fighting to to keep the old growth forests. Right. Yeah. So your master's thesis was in studying conservation photographers. How do you define conservation? Well, <laughs> okay, so conservation and um it's funny, this was probably our first um, discussion that we had in the, um, as the as the part of the taught masters, which is, you know, it was on conservation and preservation and just exactly what it means. Um, and, you know, whereas preservation is like literally preserving and not allowing things to change, like the, the word is really, it brings like a certain amount of nostalgia with it and a certain desire to, oh yeah, we must never change anything, but actually things must evolve. Um, and conservation, I guess, um, potentially has negative connotations that are associated with it. So going back to the, the positivist and the kind of reductionist science part, 
Mm-hmm. Um, conservation, I think, historically as a movement, um, has at least at times tried to simplify problems and therefore solutions to the problems have been oversimplified as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes those solutions have worked out okay in the end and sometimes they've been um, pretty disastrous. But I guess generally the concept of conservation is more about um, managing and helping certain ecosystems um, thrive. But of course, a lot of the time it's um, there's a lot of human ideas that go into what conservation is in a particular area. And I think from my understanding and from my studies, um, the most successful conservation projects are generally ones that are decided locally where, um, you know, there's a really strong understanding of what that particular ecosystem needs, what it, what it should look like, um, and has, um, very strong input from all local groups, even if those groups seemingly oppose each other. I think it's really important to, um, not just involve them, um, like a, like a token type involvement, but actually genuinely involve them in a dialogue where um, everyone can move forward together for the, for the better, um, you know, essentially to better everybody's outcome and not just one particular groups. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I was listening to a a conversation um, was an interview of the founder of Greenpeace And he described an interesting concept that I hadn't really considered before. And that was that the environmental movement has sort of co-opted the ecological movement, if you will. And so I wonder if that's getting back to sort of what you were talking about with this reductionist approach that some environmental approaches, you know, pro-environment actually destroy a lot of biodiversity. So, you know, like putting in solar arrays on one hand, quote unquote, green energy or clean energy. And on the other hand, you're like ripping out a forest to put it in. And so there's these that ecologically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, even if environmentally, it might check a box for uh, carbon reduction or that's something along those lines. So I wonder if you have any insight into that distinction (laughs) you know like like how can we be more pro ecology and the you know i'm all for sustainability and green and all that like i want to save things as much as we can improve but it always breaks my heart to see wind farms and solar arrays and how on that little microcosm of that ridgeline or whatever it's destroying the biodiversity in that area and it's disrupting that ecology and so how can we be thinking about this in a more systems thinking sort of way? And I know we're getting way off topic from photography. but <laughs> Well, it, it's all part of it um, in some weird way or other. And I think by, by thinking about it as a system and systems thinking, I think that changes the, the nuances of how, of what conservation means. So, um, I mean, Conservation medicine as a topic is a systems thinking approach. And by default, it's about health and um, how ecological health integrates with with human and non-human health. So I think that the, the concept of conservation has literally grown out of science, which is um, a very... Um, and I say this as a scientist, it's, very, it's a very Western concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very white concept and, um, it's generally a very male concept. And, um, and I think that, um, it's much healthier and it will be much healthier for our planet, for the people that live on our planet and for all the other species that live on our planet to think of things, um, from an ecological perspective, um, and I always like to talk about seeing ecologically and thinking ecologically. Um, and so, um, like another example here in British Columbia is, um, you know, for a while I was pretty involved in, um, uh, climate change activism. And 
I think, again, it's really oversimplified. So there's too much of an emphasis on switching from fossil fuels to electric and being done with that. And the reality is that in somewhere like British Columbia, um, all our electric is hydro. So something ridiculous like 98 or 99% of our electricity comes from hydroelectric. Well, you only have to look at the landscape as to what that actually does um, and uh, where those dams are, you know, everything's being decimated. Um, all our ecology that we know here in terms of like salmon runs, um, forest, bears, um, all of that um, is slowly being more and more destroyed. Um, and there are, you know, there are multiple facets to that, but it's not as simple as saying we need to make a switch from this to this. And I think by and large that um, like cities need to think more ecologically. So when they're giving approvals for building houses, you know, there's no point in having a solar array. There's no point in chopping down a forest to put down a solar array when you can just put it on the roof of your house. Right. Um, and, you know, it's much easier to put a mini wind turbine on the top of your roof than like huge wind turbines which obviously cause issues with um, bird flight and so on and so forth. And, and I think, um, but, but it, it goes back to these niches of people, scientists that tend to work in these really small um, spaces and there's not enough systems thinking people. And the very fact that people haven't heard of things like conservation medicine kind of speaks right. to itself. <laughs> yeah. you know, having, having these systems thinkers um, it feels to me that isn't it, it's not high, a high degree of importance. Um, whereas having these like niche specialists that only work in the area that they know somehow is more important. And I, I do think that we need to um, take a step back from people becoming more and more and more specialized and actually people who are able to see the bigger picture. And um and that's why I think people like Peter Cairns with his, you know, Scotland, the big picture. And, that, you know, I know you said <laughs> it had gone off topic from photography, but <laughs> people who can see and who can bring the bigger picture to the table and to other people, um, you know, I think that's part of the process. So I, I feel like in a tiny little way, like I'm doing a bit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing it back to photography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so so what's next for you i understand you recently redid your website and uh so how, how is that process and uh and what's next it was a fun process um it, you know there are uh it it's straightforward but it can be tedious at times yeah um, putting in all the words and you know for the seo and so on but it, it was a really fun process and i'm really pleased that it's up and running um, and I'm starting to write kind of more regular blog posts and things. So anyone who wants to read about my random thoughts can read up there. Yeah. And in terms of what's next, um, I mean, who knows? I, I would love to continue my studies and, um, and go on and do a PhD, um, expanding what I've already built on in my master's. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, um, continuing to build up my, uh, photography business. Um, I'd like to um, do some more mentoring and, and teaching, which, uh, I've got some teaching coming up, um, that's next great. year. So that's going to be um, pretty exciting. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and so do you want to tell us your old website and your new website so that people know where to go? Yeah. So the new website is just annamorgan.ca. So um, the old website was Blue Tusk Images, and I've kind of moved away from using um, that name. I chose it initially because it was different and unique, and um, I felt like Anna Morgan was like a, a very common name. But um, I've since been persuaded that it's that it's all about um, you know letting people know who I am, and I am actually pretty passionate about that now that I understand myself a little bit more and um you know would really like to share more of what i know with people so yeah um, annamorgan.ca 
Excellent. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Yes. <laughs> you, you say tentatively. <laughs> so, so being a vet, do you have any pets? Not at the moment. If you Although had a we pet, we do have a dog staying with us. Okay. <laughs> are you like? Would, would you have a pet preference if you had a pet? Yeah, probably a cat. Yeah. Yeah. What is your least favorite saying in photography? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess something along the lines of, um, you know, photographing in midday is like terrible light. Cause right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, what do you do in your downtime? Being that you have two little kids, uh, do you have downtime? <laughs> downtime? Downtime? What downtime? I, right. Yeah, I don't have any of that. No, I, no, in all seriousness, if I do get any time, I think reading is probably what, I would tend to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Are you an audiobook reader or visual? Visual. Yeah. Yeah, very much visual. Yep. Well, speaking of books, what is your most recommended book on photography or creativity? Um, there are so many photography books that I have uh, read, but I, I'd say the one that really helped me with creativity was Art and Fear. Art and Fear. Okay, I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Um, it's not a long book and it's pretty easy reading um and yeah some really good nuggets of information and things to kind of get you thinking so yeah excellent i'll link it up in the show notes for people to check out too yeah for sure what is something that people would be surprised to know about you um what would be oh i i do quite a lot of painting i paint oh nice Mm mm-hmm so I talk about photography a lot, but I also paint. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and so do you find that how you're creating a composition in a painting informs your photography and vice versa? Like, do you think they kind of play back and forth with each other? I've thought about this quite a bit. And for some strange reason, I think the answer is no. Hmm. Um, sometimes I, I used to take photographs thinking, oh, I'll go back and paint this. And I never really felt that it worked. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why I've created this definition between this is what I photograph and occasionally, cause I don't have a lot of time these days, but this is what I paint and they're usually quite different. Even though it's generally landscapes. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, well, final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? It means realizing that we humans um, our nature and that we all have, um, we all play our part in putting like an indelible footprint on this earth. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we're all responsible for what, um, you know, how we connect and what value we place on that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, Anna, this has been really great. I'm so glad that we got to chat and I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And, um, so you already gave us your website. Where, where can people find you on social media? So I am on Instagram under, uh, Anna Morgan photographer. And then I'm on Vero now, which is the new place that everybody's looking. And I have to say, I really enjoy it. Oh, good. Um, I haven't tried it yet. And I think I'm Anna Morgan Photography on Vero. And I am on Facebook. Um, I tend to share things uh, on my personal page rather than my business page. Um, So that's just Anna Morgan. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can probably find me under Anna Morgan Photographer and Writer on Facebook too. Okay. Well, we'll link all that up in the show notes. And I understand that you're very nicely going to give listeners 10% off. What does that apply to on your website? So it applies to any, uh, any print sales. And I have um, a calendar on there too, which is a perpetual calendar. So not, um, not an annual calendar. So that and any print sales um, and just, yeah, 10% off for any listeners. Excellent. Thank you. And that's going to go until the end of November and the code is OPS10. It is indeed. 
Excellent. Well, thank you, Anna. This has been really great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brenda, for having me on. I've um, really enjoyed our conversation. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anna. And again, you can find her beautiful new website at annamorgan.ca. And don't forget to take advantage of her coupon code OPS10 for 10% off purchases on her website until the end of November 2022. Again, thank you, Anna, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find the links to any of the information or resources we talked about today at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 77. And just a heads up, I'm in the process of updating and improving my Compose with Clarity virtual workshop. So if you're interested in learning more about composition in a way that doesn't involve rules and breaking them and that sort of thing, then listen out for future announcements about that. And if you want to learn more, just go to composewithclarity.com. And if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll be the first one to know when it will be offered. Thank you to everyone who's left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even on the podcast website. These all really help the show reach new listeners. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll share a practical photography or outdoor tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question or a topic you'd like to suggest for a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in the episode description or go to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you'll be able to record your short message. And so until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.